Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa prepares to chair the African Union and the DRC government urged to do more to tackle corruption. In economics news, trade wars cost Uganda over $400 million worth of export and in sports news, the UK government backs joint British and Irish World Cup bid. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial from an African perspective. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musa. Demonstrations have taken place across northern Ethiopia about the failure of the authorities to find a group of 27 students abducted 50 days ago. Tens of thousands took to the streets across the northern Amhara region. They chanted anti-government slogans accusing Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed of not doing enough to secure the students' release. The students from the Amhara community were kidnapped as they fled an outbreak of ethnic violence at Dembidolo University in the Oromia region. It comes more than two weeks after the authorities said they had secured the release of 21 students, but their families say nothing has been heard from them. The African Union says the continent is on high alert over the spread of the coronavirus that has gripped China. African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has urged countries on the continent to start applying preventative measures as the virus continues to spread to some countries globally. More than 100 people have died in China with confirmed infections surging to more than 4,000. The Director for African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Ngasong, says the World Health Organization is helping the continent to take precautions. We are preparing as quickly as possible in a coordinated fashion with the World Health Organization. Uh, we just conducted uh, a meeting a few minutes ago with all member states uh, the coordinated from the African Union uh, to uh, uh, ch- check with them how uh, prepared they are. And we continue to provide them support in the areas of laboratory uh, testing, in the areas of enhanced airport uh, um, uh, screening and monitoring, and also in the areas of infection uh, prevention and infection control, especially at the hospitals. Meanwhile, the Chinese President Xi Jinping says China is struggling against the coronavirus that he is confident that the country will win the battle. The president told the World Health Organization's Director General that he was personally directing efforts to stop the spread of the new coronavirus. WHO spokesperson Christian Linmier. It definitely is an emergency. It's an emergency in China. And so far, it's going back with travelers 
to foreign countries, whether it's the home country of somebody or, or a traveler as such. It's not widely spreading outside of China. But again, we have to be prepared for in case it would. Any situation, any development on any given day now could trigger another emergency committee and a re-evaluation of the situation. It's a, it's a fluid scenario. U.S. President Donald Trump's new peace plan for the Middle East has been embraced by Israel but condemned as a conspiracy by the Palestinians. His proposals offer Israel-Jerusalem as its capital, recognition of its West Bank settlements and possession of much of the most fertile land along the Jordan Valley. Palestinians are offered cash in territory threaded between settlements, the BBC's Jeremy Bowen reports. The Trump document ignores UN Resolution 242 that emphasizes the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by war. It also sweeps aside international law, saying that occupiers cannot settle their people on occupied land. There is a chance Palestinians, whose leaders immediately rejected the plan, will be afflicted by more anger, despair and hopelessness in a combustible part of the world that is dangerous. The Trump plan is a gamble. And finally, the South African Police Service will on Thursday officially launch an Amber Alert system across the country. The initiative is being undertaken in partnership with U.S. social media site Facebook. And Amber Alert is a missing child emergency alert, which works by distributing a message through a system that will enable the Facebook community to actively participate in finding missing children. The South African Police Services is the first in the Southern Hemisphere to launch Facebook's Amber Alert initiative, which is a voluntary partnership with law enforcement agencies across the globe. And that's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Just a reminder, Spotlight Africa a feature program that showcases and highlights African issues from an African perspective can be heard every Wednesday at 1000 hours UCT with repeats on Wednesday at 2000 hours Thursday at 300 hours and Sunday at 1300 hours UCT Listen to Spotlight Africa a program that interrogates issues from an African perspective Spotlight Africa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa has committed to giving life to the African Free Continental Trade Agreement during South Africa's tenure as chair of the African Union. Ramaphosa addressed South Africa's continental heads of mission in Pretoria on Tuesday. He says that much work will need to be done to operate operationalize what will become the world's largest common market with a population of more than a billion and a combined GDP of over three trillion US dollars. Busi Chimombe reports. It will be the second time that South Africa will be taking the reins of the African Union, having presided over the continental body in 2002. Next month, President Cyril Ramaphosa will be installed as the chair of the African Union 
at the 33rd Ordinary Session of the Assembly of Heads of State and Government in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Ramaphosa spelled out the priorities that South Africa will be championing to African heads of mission in Pretoria on Tuesday. Promote South Africa's values, interests and continental and domestic objectives. Two, support integration, economic development, trade and investment on our continent. Drive the implementation of the Presidential Infrastructure Champion Initiative in support of the Africa Continental Free Trade Area. Advance gender equality and the empowerment of women. Strengthen cooperation between the AU and the United Nations. Promote peace and security and advance the effort of silencing the guns. Topping the list will be breathing life into the African Continental Free Trade Area, ACFTA, that is scheduled to come into effect on the 1st of July this year. He said the agreement, which creates the world's largest common market with a population of more than a billion people and a combined GDP of 3 trillion US dollars, has the potential to boost intra-Africa trade, reignite industrialization, and pave the way for the integration of Africa into the global economy. Now, South Africa will need to be proactive and assertive in seeking common approaches on issues such as tariff lines, rules of origin, custom controls, trade in services, and new generation issues like competition and intellectual property. We will also need to address issues like ease of doing business in different African countries. In addition to chairing the AU, South Africa will also chair the Africa Peer Review Mechanism and the AU Committee of Heads of State on Climate Change. The country will also serve its final year as a non-permanent member of the United Nations Security Council. Speaking at the same meeting of the diplomats, International Relations Minister Nale Dipando said in the face of global social inequality and deteriorating living conditions of many across the world, South Africa must be a beacon of enlightenment in a world that appears increasingly unsafe. For many of our friends worldwide, South Africa is viewed as a powerful progressive alternative, able to articulate the concerns and interests of the marginalized and vulnerable while upholding the agreed progressive universal principles of the United Nations Charter. This is what the world expects from us, that we would be a beacon of enlightenment. Eh? That's, that's how we are seen by others in the world. And we need in our actions to maintain and uphold that perspective. The AU summit will be held under the theme, silencing the guns, creating conducive conditions for Africa's development. Ramaphosa says South Africa must prioritize ending the conflicts in South Sudan and Libya. In South Sudan, we are engaged both bilaterally and multilaterally, in particular as chair of the high-level and ad hoc committee on South Sudan, known as the C5. South Africa is a member of the AU high-level committee on Libya. Our efforts will aim at affirming South Africa's commitment to peace, security, and stability on the continent and ending the humanitarian catastrophe 
The AU Heads of State Summit will take place on the 9th and 10th of February. That report by Busi Chimombe. The Media Institute of Southern Africa and Zimbabwe has released its annual State of the Media report, which takes a look at the media landscape and operating environment with regards to freedom of expression, access to information, digital rights and media freedom in 2019. The report says the operating environment for journalists in Zimbabwe remained volatile in 2019, with the police linked to most of the violations. Simon Muchemo has more from Harare. Media Institute of Southern Africa... Misa Zimbabwe on Tuesday in the capital released a report entitled State of the Media Report 2019 where the police were labeled as the worst human rights violators. While the number of journalists harassed and assaulted by the police in 2019 remained at par with the 2018 report, the working environment remained volatile owing to political contestations. According to Nyasha Nyakunu, the 2019 report was meant to improve the working conditions for Zimbabwean journalists. Nyasha is the MISA Zimbabwe program's coordinator. Assaulted by members of the police force while um, uh, conducting their lawful professional duties. So when you look at it, if we look at the, the scenario that obtained in 2018 and 2019, it, it remained uh, relatively unchanged in, in the context of uh, the number of assaults. Of course, we note the decline, which is um, what should continue to happen. But um, we would want, obviously, for the situation to improve. And then if we were to also look at uh, the number of cases involving the harassment of, um, of, of journalists while um, on duty in 2018, and we did eight uh, such cases, whereas in 2019, in terms of our own records and the records uh, that we have in terms of um, what we managed to record, we had um, seven cases of um, uh, harassment, which is also a, a decline. Of course, we not the decline is positive, but the margins are still are still very very low, which means that there is still a lot that needs to be uh, improved to ensure that journalists continue to uh, journalists work without any harassment or without any hindrances is provided for in terms of their right to uh, media freedom in terms of our constitution. While there were attempts by the government to unbundle the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, AIPA, the new laws were equally the same with the old laws. Various stakeholders in the media expressed the reservations but the government used the ruling party's majority in parliament to come up with laws that were not acceptable. According to the MISA report, government on one hand accelerated the passing of the cybercrime laws generally perceived as intended to keep free speech online. This follows the closure of the cyberspace in January 2019 during protests against the fuel price increases. Nyasha Nyakunu explained. Well, we'll say, it, 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 of course, in 2019, uh, we, we noticed the, some movement in terms of um, the media law reform uh, agenda is exemplified by the unbundling of the Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, IPA, during the gazetting of the Freedom of Information Bill and uh, the Zimbabwe Media Commission Bill, which is a movement towards the amendment of the discredited Access to Information and Protection of Privacy Act, otherwise commonly known as, as IPA. But nonetheless, those bills, what needs now to be ensured is to ensure that the gazetted bills, uh, in terms of their provisions, 
their provisions are in sync with the, the, the constitutional provisions that guarantee the right to media freedom, freedom of expression and, and access to information. The Zimbabwean main opposition party movement for democratic change, MDC, refused to recognize President Emerson Mnangagwa as leader of the country, leading to serious fights in parliament. Unfortunately, laws are made in the August House, but the failure by the legislators from both parties to see with one eye has made the reform agenda a mere talk. Nyasha told Channel Africa. Well, I would say in terms of our engagement with the respective portfolio committees, it's not something that we would say that visible. But towards the end of the year, we, we noticed that um, there were those differences in terms of failure to recognize certain chairpersons by virtue of the political parties that they belong to. And obviously, if that is not contained, it might have an impact on um, uh, the media law reform process. In Harare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchema. The Democratic Republic of Congo's Anti-Corruption League has called on government to stop promises and take concrete actions to tackle corruption. The organization, well known as Likoko, has expressed disappointment as corruption remains high in the country, although President Felix Tshisekedi has promised serious fight against the scourge. Januel Bamweza reports from Kinshasa. The organization fighting corruption here in the Democratic Republic of Congo has made such a statement on Tuesday after Transparency International released a report on corruption in the world last week. According to the report, the DRC is among the 20 most corrupted countries of the world and has only 18%, meaning corruption is at a high level here in the Democratic Republic of Congo. This country's anti-corruption league regrets the fact that nothing has changed in terms of corruption since former President Joseph Kabila left power a year ago. The Likoko believes all the sectors are corrupted and nothing is done to try and fight against the situation since those on top, meaning the decision makers, are not angels. And indeed, the efforts to fight corruption here are not really visible and promises are too much. Corruption is everywhere due to impunity and lack of political will. That's indeed what the Executive Secretary of the Anti-Corruption League said. Ernest Temperaro told Channel Africa corruption is very, very serious and pointed his finger to some sectors as the most corrupted. It's a very, very, very big uh, issue. We didn't uh, progress uh, since Kabila left the power. It means that uh, the new authorities they didn't uh, take in priority the corruption issues and it means that corruption is still very, very high in all sectors in DRC. If you see the Global Barometer report which was being published by Transparency International, people are saying that uh, the prosecutors, the judges, the tax uh, collectors like uh, tax uh, authority revenue, the customs, the parliamentarian, all of these sectors is the most corrupted in the citizen perception. So it means that uh, corruption is very, very huge in all of this uh, sector and uh, political parties. So I think uh, we should uh, think about how to fight uh, corruption in this sector. The Democratic Republic of Congo is a country in which the unemployment rate is too high and of course poverty since most of investors are afraid to come and invest in and start facing corruption.
That's indeed one of the consequences of the corruption situation according to the Anti-Corruption League. The organization executive secretary believes that the issue needs to be dealt with seriously. Ernest Emparo then calls on this country's president Felix Tshisekedi to remember he promised that he would fight corruption but he hasn't done enough up to now while Congolese are expecting him to implement the anti-corruption process. Ernest Emparo. The first thing is political wills and the political wills is coming from the head of the state, from the president office. So it's the president office who should take the red card and say from today someone who has been found corrupted will be punished. So the political wills is the first thing. The second thing is to give independence from the judiciary sector. The prosecutor office should be more active on the fighting against corruption. And the third thing is the sensitization mobilization of population in order to denounce, in order to set up, in order to stand out, in order to give voice that corruption is very bad and they can shame and name people who has been corrupted. You know corruption has a huge, huge consequence in the human development. There is an employment problem here in Congo because the investors who should come to invest in DRC, they cannot invest in the country where corruption is very high. And if there is no job, it's people who will suffer because they don't have any job. And the consequence is poverty issues and the huge of insecurity in the city. You will see it in Kinshasa. There is a young people called Kuluna who is very, very big problem in Kinshasa city. So it's uh, the consequence of uh, corruption in DRC. So we must fight corruption. This is a big issues we have. And without to fight it, we will be in poverty. We will be in uh, underdevelopment country. Some of the Congolese believe this country needs an anti-corruption law, but some others do not trust since the law has to come from the parliament while most of the current senators have been accused of using corruption to be elected during their senatorial elections. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. South Africa's public protector, Busisu Mkwebane, says the parliamentary rules adopted by parliament to remove a head of a Chapter 9 institution are unconstitutional and unlawful. Mkwebane asked that they be temporarily suspended. This comes after the parliamentary speaker, Tandi Mudise, approved a motion submitted by the DA to establish an inquiry into whether Mkwebane should be removed from her office on the grounds of misconduct and incompetence. Political parties have been invited to submit nominations for people to serve on the panel that must conduct the inquiry. Lila Machnas reports. The public protector, Busesewe Mkwebane, says the rules adopted to regulate the removal of a head of a Chapter 9 institution are flawed, saying there are gaps that violate the independence of the institutions, they are not fair, and that the complainants are also the judge and jury. I further requested an undertaking from the speaker that is, this grossly unfair process be temporarily suspended until the issues I raise can be adequately addressed. I wish to stress and uh, point out that I'm not against any scrutiny. Uh, all I'm asking for is fairness. This office and that of the speaker of the National Assembly too are the guardians of fairness and should be exemplary. She says she hopes the issues she raised with Mudise will be resolved amicably. 
She, however, added that she will take the matter to court if needs be. So if the speaker doesn't uh, respond, um, as I've indicated, we are engaging with the legal team. We will then uh, view or take other um, relevant actions to, 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 to follow. Mkwebane not only faces the parliamentary inquiry, but is also under investigation by SARS into a tax affairs, as well as the Hawks on charges of perjury and defeating the ends of justice. And that report by Lila Machnas in Pretoria. South Africa's public protector advocate Busisiwe Mkwebane says the process by parliament approving... removal from office is unconstitutional and illegal. Mkwebani has written to the Speaker Tandi Mudise to reconsider her decision and to suspend the process threatening legal action if her requests were not adhered to. Mkwebane is facing a parliamentary process that is looking at the prospect of removing her from her position. To talk to us more on this, we're joined on the line by political analyst Professor Dirk Gotzer. Professor Kotze, good good morning and thank you for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Good morning, thank you very much. Now, Prof, what do you make of Parliament's approval to remove the public protector? Is this good? Well, this this comes a very long way already. Um, and I think what was the, the factor that uh, intervened in this is when Parliament first had to go through a, a committee process in order to establish these rules. Um, and that those rules follow actually on the rules that were established for the impeachment of the president. And they are quite similar to each other. So I think what, uh, what we are seeing now is going to be, in a sense, a test of these rules. Um, but the, 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 the main fact is, is that the authority for these rules comes from the Constitution. So to challenge the, the, the very essence of this, to say that members of Parliament, uh, because they've made pronouncements uh, about the public protector in the past, are therefore disqualified or they are biased, um, simply won't be able to to stand. Uh, We have a very similar process happening in the U.S. at the moment with the impeachment of President uh, Trump. Um, And uh, that argument was then applied to, in, in his case also. So because this is a not a purely legal process, it is it's a process which is designed and it exists. It comes from the, the UK more than 200 years, years ago of the role of Parliament in order to have an oversight uh, role over persons in, in the executive and in other positions. Um, that is exactly what we are applying now. So it's a very old established constitutional principle uh, in many parts of the world and it's not just the making of South Africa. Now, Prof, there's been some a bit of confusion as to um, exactly what is happening. Is this a process to remove her from office, or is it a process to, um, you know, establish whether she is fit to hold office? Well, I think it's 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 both. Um, first of all, the um, the test in order to determine what her future will be is that she must be fit for office. Um, if this investigation, and there's actually two steps in the investigation, the first one is, is well, first is a debate in, in Parliament where it must in principle be established that there is evidence 
Then it is referred to an outside body, and that's what uh, what's been talked about in terms of membership. Um, and then um, that body of of rather experts reported back to Parliament, and then there's another board, uh, committee established in Parliament that will then go through the whole process, and they must ultimately vote on it, and then it requires a two-thirds majority. It's very similar, as I said, with the impeachment of, of the president. So it's a very elaborate process, and uh, towards the end of it, um, when it is debated uh, and investigated in Parliament, the, the accused, in this case, then the public protector, will be able to present her case with her own legal team. So what she's objecting about to is that the fact that she's not involved in, it, in, the, in the early stages of this process. But there's no question that at, at the later stage, uh, she will have her opportunity to present her case. So that is why we are going to have to see to what extent... Um, her argument will be, if she takes it to a court, will be agreed upon by, by a court. But uh, from a process which is regarded as not a, almost a, a quasi-legal process, because it is there are strong legal components in it, but it is done by politicians. It's done by members of parliament. Therefore, it not, does not meet all the strict requirements of a legal or judicial process, because it's not meant to be like that. Now, in terms of uh, you know the, the process, is uh, Parliament within its rights to go through to uh, go through with this process? And what does this do to the public protector's credibility, the credibility of the office? Yes. <clears throat> in the first instance, Parliament is authorized by the Constitution. Uh, Parliament has the obligation to deal uh, with all heads uh, or all uh, com- commissions. Um, of Chapter 9 institutions, um, and in, even only members of commissions, like, for example, the Electoral Commission or the Human Rights Commission uh, or the Gender Commission can go through a process like this. Um, but And that is the Constitution that gives authority to Parliament uh, to, to, to do this, and it, uh, it's both houses that are involved in this. So there, there's no question about the constitutionality of the process itself. Um, she might be able to question some detail about the, the regulations of that process, but in principle, there's no question about whether it can be done. The reason for it is that it is a typical impeachment uh, phenomenon, which, as I said, is exists in many parts of the world. Um, and it is to say that these persons are independent, or these commissions are independent, but there must be some other uh, checks and balance on them, um, and Parliament is the only one that they have to report to on an annual basis. They receive the budget from Parliament. And also Parliament must deal with the competence of, of the incumbents. Um, so in, in that sense, it is not it is a reflection on the incumbent of the public protector, but it is not in reflection on the public protector as an institution. Professor Costa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. That's Professor Dirk Gotze, Senior Lecturer in the Department of Political Sciences at the University of South Africa, joining us on the line. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African, From an African perspective. perspective.
A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines. Demonstrations have taken place across northern Ethiopia about the failure of authorities to find a group of 27 students abducted 50 days ago. The African Union says the continent is on high alert over the spread of the coronavirus that has gripped China. And U.S. President Donald Trump's new peace plan for the Middle East has been embraced by Israel but condemned as a conspiracy by the Palestinians. Those are the stories making headlines. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. France has announced it will send a plane to repatriate its citizens from the Chinese city of Wuhan in the first evacuations carried out by a European country. There are three confirmed cases of the virus in France, all of whom the health ministry says are stable in hospital. Elena Casas reports from Paris. There's no screening in place here at Charles de Gaulle Airport for these passengers returning from China. French authorities say there's no need, since the country has sophisticated tests in place if anyone does start to feel ill. Jerome Salomon is Director General of the French Health Ministry. I would like to remind you that today in France we are benefiting from a rapid test that will be available more and more widely in the coming days and this is important to be able to reassure people who are classified as possible cases and will therefore be excluded in a few hours or confirmed in a few hours. The health ministry says it is prepared for more cases. Here at the Bichat Hospital, two patients who recently returned from China are being held in isolation and the hospital says they're in a stable condition. Seven other bedrooms have been prepared for possible future cases. Up to a 1,000 French citizens are believed to be in Wuhan, where carmaker Peugeot has a major factory. The government announced on Tuesday it's sending a flight to repatriate them. Agnès Bouin is the French Minister of Health. The aim is to identify if there are any French citizens who are ill so they can be taken care of. They will get special transport. We won't be mixing people who are ill and those who don't have any symptoms. We think the plane will return to France on Friday. The health ministry has stressed that if people who have come back from China start to feel ill, they should stay at home and call a special emergency line to avoid infecting others. Elena Casas, SABC News, Paris. Gateway to Africa is our entertaining and educational tourism, travel and business show. Join us every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time as we explore the tourism landscape in Africa. Make a date with Gateway to Africa every Wednesday at 10 hours Central African time. Nearly 5 million children in Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger will need humanitarian assistance over the course of 2020 amid a surge of violence in the central Sahel region. This is according to a new report released this week by the United Nations Children's Fund. UNICEF is calling for renewed, increased and concerted efforts to curb the ongoing violence and to stop it from spreading into neighbouring countries. For more on this issue, Jane Rabutata spoke to... Aude Rigot, Emergency Specialist at UNICEF, West and Central Africa Regional Office. We have seen the last 12 months, so Sahel was 
under uh, the lens of security issues. And most of the time we were talking about Sahel, we were talking about military operation and security issues. And now UNICEF wants to uh, highlight the impact of this crisis on the children. And uh, as an example, we have uh, more than 670,000 children that have been forced to flee their homes. It's a two-fold increase uh, in children displaced in one year only, and it's five-fold increase only in Burkina Faso. We have to imagine how difficult it is when you lose and you have to leave your home and you lose everything you have and you just stay in one place that you have never been. And in addition, if we want to talk about the impact of the crisis, we since April 2017, we have more than 3,300 schools that are closed. That's affecting more than 650,000 children that are out of schools. And it means that those children are currently doing nothing outside, living without any hope of accessing education. And we know that education is also linked to protection. And this crisis, the protection of the children is really at stake. And uh, we know that the grave violation against children, it means like killings, mutilation, abuse, have increased last year compared to the previous year. And this is where it started being really alarming. Now, UNICEF is also concerned about the negative coping mechanisms often witnessed in conflict zones. What are the fears for children or what is UNICEF already seeing children resorting to in an effort to survive? Is that true that in such a conflict, in such a dire situation, children might use negative coping mechanisms. They can be exploited, sexually exploited also, and they can just be obliged to work or any other or be separated to their parents. So what we do and what we have seen, we try as much as possible to ensure that the protection system is in place. First, to ensure that the separated children are known, are identified and reunified as soon as possible. And for to prevent also children being maybe recruited by armed groups or being abused, we do sensitization and we ensure that in the field we have uh, with our partners, we, we are working to monitor uh, what's exactly going on and we can also manage cases when it's coming up. What needs to happen? What do you think as the child agency should be done and by whom to better the situation for children in the Sahel region? We need to ensure that the security is back. Without security, a country cannot develop itself. And to ensure that children can have access to social services, we need also uh, ensure that those social services are available. And this is not the case in all the places in the Sahel. And for this, we need to ensure also that the humanitarian workers, the international organization, but also NGOs, national, internationals, have access to those population that we, by presence, we protect population. And we can also provide immediate assistance, life-saving assistance, but also try also to continue the development work that was there before, because without development, it will impact definitely the situation of the children in the future.
let's also reflect on what UNICEF, being the child agency, what has the organization been doing in that region? If you could give us an update of the organization's humanitarian activities in response to what the children are going through. UNICEF has been delivering since the beginning of the crisis. Even before the crisis, UNICEF was present in the field. We had development programs and we had also a humanitarian response in Mali and Niger. That's through that Burkina Faso joined, uh, unfortunately, the three uh, the Sahel countries in uh, this type of crisis. But we have been uh, delivering assistance in water, hygiene and sanitation for more than 350,000 people. We have provided a vaccination. We have vaccination providing immunization against measles for more than 1 million children. And we also treated and provided um, nutritional elements, inputs for undernutrition children for about 500,000 of them. So we have been doing a lot. There's still a lot to be done because we, we faced last year, as an example, 59% underfunding on our humanitarian appeal. And it means that we can even do more if we have more support to do so. That's Ude Rigot, emergency specialist at the UN's Children's Fund Regional Office for West and Central Africa, on the line from Dakar in Senegal, speaking to Jane Rabutata. The city of Cape Town in South Africa says foreign nationals living in the Central Methodist Church in the CBD are not homeless but are simply protesters who are unhappy with living in South Africa. The city is seeking an interdict in the High Court against an estimated 700 people who live on the street at Green Market Square. It says they are violating its bylaws. Advocate Con Joubert says none of them have stated in court papers that they are homeless. Tendiswa Mao reports. Council for the city of Cape Town, Con Yubay, has argued in the Western Cape High Court that the city is seeking an order for the removal of those living on the pavement, saying they are violating city bylaws. The city argues that they urinate, wash and cook on the pavement, exposing the city to fire hazards. He also argued that businesses are complaining that they are losing clients due to the current situation on the ground. However, he says the city has no jurisdiction on those living inside the church building. In order could have seen numerous emails, complaints by hotel owners in the area, by restaurants that all lost business as a result of, of, of this protest and the way in which it's been conducted. There, is, uh, there are complaints of drunkenness, of fighting, uh, of defecating, urinating. But the allegations are serious and they are... They include, they include uh, very importantly, uh, a letter from the Green Market Traders Association. The Department of Home Affairs has been cited as respondents in the case. It argued that it has done its job in terms of documenting the foreign nationals and cannot understand why it's being dragged to court. Counsel for the department, Seth Ndai, says only 68 of the 700 people living in the church are undocumented. He says the city has failed to provide a venue for home affairs to verify the foreign nationals. It has been our case right from the beginning. And we are saying, city, give us a place where we can go and discharge our statutory responsibility. We have got no problem in doing that. You drag us to court unnecessarily so, but we are still prepared to do in the interest of everybody, in the interest of the public. Acting Judge Daniel Tulara also wanted to find out where the foreign nationals would be moved to if he grants the order sought by the city, but its lawyer says the city has no capacity to provide them with alternative accommodation. 
Outside court leader of the group, J.P. Palus, was adamant that the UNHCR has an obligation to move them out of South Africa to a third country. Judgment in the matter has been reserved until the 17th of February. I'm Tandi Swamawi in Cape Town. Hello. To celebrate African women's achievements, self-emancipation, human rights and democracy, listen to Womanity, Women in Unity, an advocacy radio program against all forms of gender-based discrimination and violence against women. Womanity, Women in Unity, on Channel Africa every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Humanity, Women in Unity, with Dr. Amalea Gonez Malka, every Thursday at 5 past 10 Central African Time and every Sunday morning at 5 past 6 Central African Time. Channel Africa, celebrating African women's achievements, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. When I think back to my childhood, geographically, it reminds me of a time where I was black and only black and only struggling, but at the same time, always reaching for something more, something bigger in a South Africa that was hostile. Hello, Africa. This is 1000 African Voices, and I'm your host, Avurengui. Join me on Channel Africa every Thursday morning between 8 and 9 and on Saturday and Sunday morning between 9 and 10. Rise, Africa, rise. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Our economics updates up next with Tabiso Luhoko. Good morning. South African Airways has advised the passengers, travel agencies and airline partners to continue booking flights on the airline after receiving 244 million US dollar emergency funding from the Development Bank of Southern Africa. The DBSA has also committed to make an additional 137 US dollars available as a drawdown loan. A drawdown loan is a loan which enables the borrower to take out further advances. SAA's Chief Commercial Officer, Philip Saunders. Today marks an important milestone for South African Airways with a commitment uh, from the Development Bank of Southern Africa to provide the next tranche of our post-commencement financing. That's a total of 3.5 billion rand and an immediate drawdown of 2 billion rand. This represents a bridge all of the work being carried out so closely together by our stakeholders, the government, our lenders, the management, and of course the business rescue team in order to develop a sustainable, competitive, and efficient airline. According to data sourced from Bank of Uganda, Uganda Revenue Authority and Uganda Coffee Development Authority, trade wars and border blockades within the East African region 
cost Uganda 454.7 million US dollars worth of export revenue for the year ended December 2019. The data indicates that Uganda lost much more revenue from Kenya and Rwanda compared to other EAC member states. For instance, according to the data, Uganda's export receipts from Rwanda declined to 173 million US dollars in 2019 from 250 million US dollars in 2018. Boeing, which remains mired in crisis following two fatal crashes of its top-selling 737 MAX, is set to report another ugly set of financial results on Wednesday. The aerospace giant, led by newly installed chief executive David Calhoun, is expected to announce billions of dollars in additional costs connected to the MAX grounding. The plane has been out of service since March after the second of two crashes that had killed 346 people. Boeing suspended production on the plane earlier this month. The American tech giant Apple has posted its higher ever quarterly results for the final three months of last year. Apple's net profit reached a record $22 billion on quarterly revenues of more than $90 billion. But the company's CEO, Tim Cook, has warned of uncertainty over its next quarter earnings because of the coronavirus outbreak in China, a major market and manufacturing hub for the company. The BBC's Zoe Thomas reports. Apple's chief executive, Tim Cook, said the company was monitoring the situation in Wuhan and across China closely. In Wuhan, where an outbreak of coronavirus has led to a region-wide quarantine, Apple said it was looking for alternative suppliers. It wasn't all worries for Apple, though. The company saw an almost $3 billion increase in the sale of wearables, home, and accessories. That's thanks in large part to demand for its newest Apple Watch and AirPod wireless earbuds. Services, including the recently launched Apple TV Plus and Apple News Plus, also saw tremendous growth. The South African-born fast food chicken chain Nando's has launched a plant-based patty in Australia. The Great Pretender Burger is made from plant-based protein, flavored with lemon, herbs and garlic, as well as Nando's African bird's eye chili. The Australian Daily Mail reports that the patty will be launched in Queensland, Australia next week and will cost 9.95 US dollars. It will be available across Australia later in the year. The US dollar is trading at 360.76 Nigerian Nara. 1065 Botswana Pula, 9960 Kenyan shilling, and 1454 Zambian guacha. In BRICS currencies, one US dollar will cost you 420 Brazilian roll, 6262 Russian ruble, 7121 Indian rupee, 693 Chinese yuan, and 1459 to the South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 90 cents to the euro. Gold one thousand five sixty four dollars, platinum nine eighty seven dollars per ounce, brand crude oil sixty dollars twenty eight cents a barrel. Africa rise and shine. A sports update up next with Figile Lingwati.
First up in our sports update is rugby news. Organizers of the South African, New Zealand and Australia rugby, Sansa says Super Rugby has adopted an air quality policy ahead of Friday's season opening matches in the wake of the bushfires that have caused havoc across Australia. The bushfires have killed 33 people and about 1 billion animals since September, while 2,500 homes and an area the size of Greece have been destroyed. Super Rugby kicks off with New Zealand's Auckland Blues hosting the Waikato Chiefs, but it is Friday's second game in Canberra between the ACT Brumbies and Queensland Reds that is of more concern for organisers. The smoke that shrouded Canberra in December, forcing the cancellation of a 2020 cricket match and Super Rugby's Brumbies to move their pre-season training to Newcastle for 10 days, has returned this week. Cricket News, Vernon the surgeon, Philander, described his last test series for the Proteas as an emotional roller coaster despite going down 3-1 in the series and 191 runs in the fourth and the final test match at the Imperial Wanderers. The 34-year-old who made his test debut in 2011 against Australia in Newlands, Cape Town, hung up his spikes after 64 tests later with 224 wickets to his name. Philander says he will miss his teammates. Yeah, I think it's for me personally, it was pretty emotional. A uh, couple of weeks, you know, obviously knowing that I'm going to be stepping out of this environment and uh, leaving my teammates behind. Um, so, yeah, for me personally, it was pretty emotional. All in all, all credit goes to England in the way that they played. I think they've outplayed us, outskilled us in, in, in both departments. We obviously had a probably a start of a new generation, you know, so to speak. Um, it's, it's a pretty young team, a pretty new team. So, I think, you know, you, could, yeah, you have to allow, you know, people to settle into positions as well. I think we, we as South Africans, we're pretty quick to criticize, you know, but I think. You know, there's a lot of young guys, a lot of new faces in that team, and yeah, you've got to allow them a bit of time to settle in. And uh, I suppose, you know, only then will the wheels start turning, you know, with regards to performances, etc. But like I just said, you know, I think you know England came here and they played pretty good cricket. We had a fairy tale start at, at, at Centurion, um, but the other way they managed to turn it around was pretty special. The Cape Town born and Belleville bred Philander says he has no regrets about how his career at test level has gone over the past nine years. The pace bowler come all-rounder also managed eight half-centuries with a bet. Philander has more. I would like to be remembered. Someone has always gave it my all. I think, you know, that's all you could ask for. Yeah, I mean, I've left it all out there. No regrets. So, yeah. I think, you know, when you come from our sort of background, there's a couple of other skills, you know, that you obviously get brought up with. Um, survival is one of them. And then, yeah, you always find a way, um, you know, irrespective of what the conditions are. And I think, you know, that's something that I'll always be grateful, especially for my conditions, like I said, you know, where I come from. You always have to find a way to make it. And, uh, yeah, I did exactly that. And I'm sitting here today, and like I said, I've got no regrets and truly, you know, humbled and... Uh, just thankful for the opportunities and you know being obviously given to me. Head of the European Challenge Tour, Jamie Hodges says the tour is excited about their partnership with Sunshine Tour to host the 2020 Limpopo Championship. The tournament teed off with the Pro Ams this morning at Euphoria Golf Estate and Coral Creek in Mudimulle. Hodges says the two-year-old tournament is a great opportunity for Sunshine Tour players to qualify for the Challenge Tour, which is a way to the European Tour. It's a great opportunity for the Sunshine Tour players to, to play against uh, the Challenge Tour players. It's a great opportunity for them to, to welcome the Challenge Tour players. But it also gives them opportunity on the Challenge Tour. So good performances this week and the next two weeks will give them opportunity throughout the rest of the Challenge Tour season if they wish to come to Europe. And uh, the Challenge Tour is the way to the European Tour. So at the end of our season, 
the top 20 players on our rankings will go on to the European Tour. So this partnership with the Sunshine Tour enables the Sunshine Tour players, if they wish to, to earn points on the Challenge Tour. And if they wish to come to Europe when we play golf in the European season, not quite as nice weather as it is today, uh, then they can, uh, and if they play well, they, can, they have the opportunity to graduate to the, to the European Tour. Lastly, tennis. After pulling off a miracle victory against American world number 100th tennis Sengren by saving seven match points, Roger Federer remained optimistic about recovering fully from a groin problem in time for Thursday's Australian Open semi-final. That's your Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Africa prepares to chair the African Union and the DRC government urged to do more to tackle corruption. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumusa Ramakaza and Tutongubeni, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Vicky Sampson with a song titled African Dream. Multiplying and weary hearts denied. 